Genesis chapter 27. We're going to do a little overlap between what Jordan went through last week into this week. So Mark Jekyll is going to read for us Genesis 27, beginning in verse 41. Genesis 27, beginning in verse 41. And then he's going to stop halfway through chapter 28. Now Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, The days of mourning for my father are approaching. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. But the words of Esau, her older son, were told to Rebekah. And she sent and called Jacob, her younger son, and said to him, Behold, your brother Esau comforts himself about you by planning to kill you. Now therefore, my son, obey my voice. Arise. Flee to Laban, my brother in Haran, and stay with him a while, while your brother's fury turns away, until your brother's anger turns away from you, and he forgets what you have done to him. Then I will send and bring you from, here, from there. Why should I be bereft of both of you in one day? Then Rebekah said to Isaac, I loathe my life because of these Hittite women. If Jacob marries one of the Hittite women like these, one of the women of the land, what good will my life be to me? Then Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and directed him, You must not take a wife of the Canaanite women. Arise, go to Padan Aram, to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father, and take your wife from one of uh, the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you, that you may become a company of peoples. May he give the blessing of Abraham to you and to your offspring with you, that you may take possession of the land of your sojournings that God gave to Abraham. Thus Isaac sent Jacob away and went to Padan Aram to Laban, the son of Bethuel, the Aramean, the brother of Rebekah, Jacob's and Esau's mother. Now Esau saw that Isaac had blessed Jacob and sent him away to Padan Aram to take a wife from there. And that he had blessed him and directed him, you must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. And that Jacob had obeyed his father and his mother and had gone to Padan Aram. So when Esau saw that the Canaanite women did not please Isaac, his father, Esau went to Ishmael and took his wife, besides the wives he had, Mahalath, the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son, the sister of Naoboth. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. Let's take a second. I want to pray for us before we jump into this passage. Holy Spirit, I ask you now, because Jesus told us in the book of John that we should ask for more of the Spirit, that we should ask for the Spirit to come, and we should ask for the Spirit to do in our hearts and in our minds what only He can do. And so right now, Spirit of the living God, I pray that you would descend on us. I pray that you'd fill this room Please fill our hearts. Show us what you want to show us. Reveal to us what it is that you want to reveal to us for our good and for the glory of the Father, the Son, and yourself. And I pray specifically this morning that you would set anyone in this room free who finds themselves particularly in bondage in some way to something. Lord, that you would 
fall upon them and use your word and your spirit to open their heart and mind to see where they're perhaps believing lies and that you would open them up to what you want to do. Set us free today. God, I'm sure we all have thoughts and emotions that do not line up with what is true about you or about us. And so I pray you'd expose us to that, open our eyes to that, that we might repent and live our days on this earth as humans the way you created us to, and more specifically as your children, filled with your spirit. And so come and do way more than I've even prayed for right now in our lives and in our church, I ask. In Jesus' name, amen. I would love for this sermon this morning to go down in history as the What If Sunday. What if God's people completely believed all the promises of God? What if God's people knew, believed, loved, and lived as if every single promise in God's word spoken to us were true? How would it change our lives? How would it impact us if we embraced this book as 100% truth and everything God says to us in here and promises to us in here, we really believed it. Like it gripped our hearts, it changed our lives, and informed our thinking. Our actions were different as a result. How would that change your life? How would that change our church? How could that change Mount Airy? Well, this morning in the little verses that Mark just read, we see a family who does not believe the promises of God and they're reaping the benefits of it. Or should I say they're dealing with all kinds of conflict and fighting and manipulation. And we saw some of that last week. And all of that really comes from the root of not believing God's promises. Now, God's promise to his people, in this story, began in the book of Genesis in chapter 12. And I want you to just turn there for a second, because this has to inform what we're going to look at this morning. In Genesis 12, this is the first time God appears to Abraham, who was then Abram. And he has some things to say to Abram. So I want to read them to you. Genesis 12, 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, and this, this is a shocker. This isn't like, oh, of course, he speaks all the time. This was a lightning bolt moment. He's a stargazer. He's a pagan. No, no pursuit of God. And suddenly God, the Lord, says to him, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be blessed. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So we could say it's a threefold promise. I'm going to give you land, I'm going to give you offspring, and then I'm going to make you a blessing to all the families in the earth. And God repeats this in chapter 17, a little different wording, but the same promise, and then again in 18, and then he adds to or clarifies it or continues it in chapter 25. So look ahead to 25 with me for a moment. Chapter 25, in verse 23, and we, we looked at this just a few weeks ago. Chapter 25, verse 23. Remember the promise went from Abraham, and then Abraham has Isaac. It was passed down to Isaac, and now it's getting passed down. And here's what it says, what God says after Rebekah goes and inquires of the Lord of why there's such a struggle going on in her soul. She inquires of him, and then in 25, 23, it says, And the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb and two peoples from within you. So she's finally having a child, no, she's having two children at the same time after waiting 20 years 
She's finally pregnant. And she inquires the Lord, you have two nations are in your room, and two individuals from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, and this is the key phrase, the older shall serve the younger. So in that moment, God is telling Isaac and Rebekah what to expect from their kids. The older is going to serve the younger. The younger is going to be in charge or receive the blessing from God that came to Abraham and not the older son. So they have these promises. They have the plan of God. Now, I try to imagine what it would be like if God like, laid out that clear of a plan for me. And this is what your kid's going to do, and this is what this kid's going to do. And you kind of knew what was going on, and you knew where it was headed. They knew. But as the story unfolds, they don't live like they knew. They don't live like they knew the promises of God. And so what I want to do this morning, I believe the Spirit wants us to actually enter into their conflict, their manipulation, their fear, their anger, that revolt, results from them not believing, loving, or living as if the God's promise and plan are true. And then I want us to recognize how we can often be like them, how you and I can be like them, how we cannot believe God's promises at times, so that we can then fight against that and start believing more. Because we know, we, we've talked about this often, that we're believers, right? But I'm also, I'm an unbelieving believer. In other words, I believe, but I don't believe. There's days that I believe more than others. I believe Jesus died on the cross for my sins and he's my savior. But I don't always believe that he's with me all the time or that he's going to take care of me all the time. There's all kinds of things I don't believe. And so what I'm praying is that this morning we kind of make some of those connections for ourselves. Places maybe where we don't believe. And God wants to help us this morning to leave here believing just a little bit more. So we've got these little stories in here, which they're connected, but they're also a bit unique. Because when you look at them, you've got... Esau talking in verse 41 of chapter 27, where Mark began reading this morning. First, we get a little window into Esau and what he believes. And then in verse 42, it transitions to Rebekah, and we see what she believes. And then in chapter 28, verse 1, we kind of get a glimpse at what Isaac believes. And then we go back to Esau in chapter 28, verse 6. So there's like little interviews almost. Like, I'm going to interview this person. You're going to see what they do and what they, what they really believe in their lives, and then how that impacts their relationships. So, you ready to go? We're going to start with Esau. We're going to start with Esau. So, in Esau, uh, we see him in chapter 27, verse 41. Now, Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, the days of mourning for my father are approaching. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. All right, it's pretty clear he's not believing any promises. We'd talk like that, right? I mean, the dude wants to kill his brother. He hates him, and his hatred is now turning to murder, or he wants to murder. And he says the reason why. Well, it's because of the blessing. The blessing is going to my brother. Now, we know that the blessing and the inheritance, or the, uh, the birthright, came to him through a pretty messed up way, right? I mean, you got the whole soup thing, because I'm hungry, and so he bamboozles his brother out of that, and then we found out last week he, he puts on goat skin all over his head and his face and his arms so he can trick his dad into blessing him, thinking that he's Esau. So yeah, the way it happens is messed up, but Esau is still very ticked off and ultimately really at God because God's the one that said that Jacob would get the blessing in the first place. So he's upset and he's out to murder. Esau believed, I think, that God's plan was unfair God's plan could be undone, and that his plan, Esau's plan, was better, which ultimately meant Esau did not want to serve his brother, but he wanted to be served. 
Imagine that. Somebody thinking they're more important than somebody else. Somebody thinking, I shouldn't be here to serve you. You should be here to serve me. Even if God said it should be the other way around. I exist to be served. Or so was his thinking. And so I wonder this morning, what if? What if? What if Esau had believed God's way was best? What if Esau had believed God was good? And that God had a plan? Even if it meant that he wasn't the most important person in the universe. What if Esau had lived humbly as a servant, putting Jacob and Jacob's needs before him, knowing that he's the child of promise, he's the one who is going to bring blessing to the nations, and I want to get behind that and support what God is doing. What if Esau had humbled himself and said, Jacob first, me second. He must increase, I must decrease. What if he had thought that way? What if he lived on a mission to serve his brother, love his brother, and play whatever part God wanted him to play in his life? What if he had taken what he believed, which was me first, him second, and flipped it upside down and said, in light of God's promise, he's first and I'm second? What if? What if he believed God's promise? And so I'm going to boil this down just a little application for us this morning, a little what-if time. And I want, to, I want to make it specific here, try to match it with what I think is going on in Esau's heart. And so I asked this morning, what if you knew, loved, and lived believing what God says about you? About him saying things like, it is better to give than receive. Or consider others better than yourselves. Or serve one another in love. I mean, what if we really believed that? How would that impact your relationships with one another? Consider others better than yourself. Just take that one and your life's changed. As well as the lives of everybody around you. And I think if Jacob or if Esau had done the same thing, he would have seen a radical difference in the dynamics of his family. So this morning, just want to ask us the question as a church even, are we living on mission to serve one another, to consider everyone that we come across as more important than ourselves and desiring more than anything to carry the joy and grace and love of God to them by going low and serving? What if? What if we really believed what God said in his word? Well, the story shifts then from Esau to Jacob and Rebekah. So we get this little interaction with Rebekah and Jacob, and then we get one with Rebekah and Isaac. So let's just take a second look at Rebekah and Jacob. What does Rebekah love and believe? What promises is she clinging to? What is she ignoring about God's promises? Well, let's look at her interaction in verse 42. But the words of Esau, her older brother, were told to Rebekah, and she sent and called Jacob, her younger son, and said to him, Behold, your brother Esau comforts himself about you by planning to kill you. Now, therefore, my son, obey my voice, arise, flee to Laban, my brother in Haran, and stay with him a while until your brother's fury turns away. So there's a lot going on here. And I want to begin by just saying this, because someday I'm going to meet Rebecca, and I do not want to throw her under the bus. So I'm going to tell you right now that the things she does in this story are all in my heart, and I want to do them. And I also want to recognize she does not have the gospel or the spirit of God living in her. So I'm, I'm going to just, I'm giving her some grace here. So even if you hear me talk what might seem hard or harsh, know that in my soul there is a sense of grace. But I want us to identify with her as people who do have the spirit and do have the written word and do have the gospel. 
Because there's power in that. There's power in that to believe that she didn't have. So I'm going to give her grace, although I'm going to probably press you maybe a little more than you want to be pressed this morning. So what do we read in this story, what I just read to you? Here's what I think. I think that she is a dispensary of fear in this moment. (laughs) She is just pushing fear into Jacob's soul. Do you see that? And she's believing lies. She's not believing the promise. Let me see if I can make that clear. Instead of her believing the older will serve the younger, she believes the older will kill the younger. That's what she's believing functionally. And so what's her goal? Save him. Rescue him. I need to be his savior. I need to figure out a way to save my son. As opposed to, oh, wait, God made a promise. God made a promise. I mean, what if, what if Rebecca had believed God's promise that Esau would serve Jacob rather than believing that Esau would kill Jacob? Then she would have have gone to Jacob and she would have said, Jacob, don't worry about your brother Esau. God's hands on your life. God made a promise. God has a plan. And ultimately, he's going to serve you, not kill you. So fear not. Don't be afraid. God's got a plan. What if she believed that instead of driving him away, which is what she did? She really increased his fear. Go, go quickly, go now, go far. Your brother is going to kill you. And so she passes on fear to him instead of belief, instead of anchoring his soul in the sovereignty of God and the power of God and the plan of God and the promise of God. She acts in fear and imparts fear onto him. So that's the first little thing. And then it seems with little or no transition, I don't know whether Isaac is there when this is happening, but verse 46, now we see her interaction with Isaac. Uh, Then Rebecca said to Isaac, it's almost like she's having this conversation with Jacob, and then she turns and she has a conversation with Isaac. I don't know whether they heard each other's conversations, but she immediately turns to him, to her husband, and she says this. Then Rebecca said to Isaac, I loathe my life because of the Hittite woman. If Jacob marries one of these Hittite women like these, one of the women of the land, oh, what good will my life be to me? We can almost hear her like agony, almost her sarcasm is the wrong word, her despair over if he only, if he marries a Hittite woman, this is a terrible thing. Now I want you to see what's going on here because she turns to Isaac and couples her fear of Jacob's death with anxiety over who he might marry. God forbid, a Hittite. She wants Isaac to share in her anxiety so that he'll do something about it. You ever been there? (laughs) Try to get somebody to share in your fear so maybe they'll act with you to get something done. I mean, that's what she's doing here. She's manipulating. She's trying to get what she wants. She's trying to get him to do what she wants, which is to send him away. Send Jacob away. Have him get a wife somewhere else. Flee so that he won't be killed by his brother. So her motive now is twofold, right? Let's send him away, save his life, and get him a wife that I will like. Those are her motives. But instead, she is increasing Jacob's fear, so it seems, and she is now increasing Isaac's fear. Now, I want you to notice in this story that this whole deal with the Hittite woman is really just her personal preference. Nowhere in Genesis so far has God said anything about not marrying a Hittite or marrying somebody specific. So this is just her deal. 
And we think we know why, because you look at chapter 26, verse 34, and we see that Esau married two Hittite women, and they made life bitter, it says, for her and Isaac. So I think she doesn't want any more bitterness, so now she is trying to not let that happen again. But you've got to notice that it's not God's plan. This is not God's request. This is her deal. This is what she wants. She's clearly and repeatedly, really, does say to Abraham's, God does, to Abraham's offspring, that they are going to inherit this land. And yet, what is she doing? She wants to send him out of the land because she doesn't want a Hittite to be a daughter-in-law. So really, this is a godless request, if you will. It seems like she believes maybe that all the nations will be blessed, but not the Hittites. (laughs) Maybe that's her motive. I don't know. But she's sending him away from the very land that God said he was going to give to him. And I find it crazy if you kind of think about Rebecca's life. I mean, 20 years, no kid. First of all, think about how she even met Isaac in the first place is crazy, coincident. And then she doesn't have a baby for 20 years. She finally gets pregnant. She has twins. She says that she's going to die giving birth in her pregnancy. And then she lives through it. I mean, God has done so much for her. You think God would be in the picture, but it seems in the story, God is nowhere to be found. Not with Esau, not with Rebecca, not with Jacob, and not with Isaac. It's almost like she's thinking like an atheist. There's no mention of God. God's not even in the picture, let alone God's promises. What if... Rebecca had gone to Isaac and said, Isaac, God's got this. He's got it under control. He's got a wife picked out for our son, and he will bring her into the picture in his timing. We just need to trust that God will do that. And if it is a Hittite woman, we'll just pray they're not like the ones that Esau married. What if, instead of using fear to activate her plan, she had faith for God to activate his plan? What if she trusted God? What if she believed God's promise? Is it possible that if she had, that this would not be the last time she would have seen her son, Jacob? Very last time. He comes back 20 years later, and she's already dead. What if she had not? sent him away? What if she had trust God? What if she had believed God and his promises rather than reacting in fear? What about you this morning? What about you? What if you believed, loved, and lived in such a way that instead of being a dispensary of fear and manipulation, you were a dispensary of joy and belief in the promises of God? Now, this is specifically applicable to parents, but certainly to couples, and certainly just to anybody who hangs out with other believers. When you're with them, are you reminding them of promises and truth, or are you reacting in fear and anxiety? In fact, I think it's a good time to hit the pause button and talk about fear and talk about anxiety, because I don't know anybody who doesn't, at some point, in different ways, deal with both. Do I have an Amen. It can go from extreme depression and anxiety attacks that lock you down for days to just mild anxiety that you carry around with you that isn't quite as debilitating. But either the way, it's anxiety and fear 
I think that many of us just deal with on a regular basis. And I'm pretty sure, in fact, I'm very sure, that there's something about Jesus, about who he is, about what he's done, about what he's doing or will do, that is meant to speak into your anxiety, that is meant to speak into whatever it is that you're dealing with in your fear. Because we do believe that Jesus is the answer. That that's not just a cliche, but there's something about him that's meant to help us with our fear. I don't know if you have promises you go to or places you go to or passages you said, this is mine, I'm making this mine. I have a few of those. Places that I go when I can fear the anxiety creeping in, the fear creeping in. One of my favorites is in Matthew, 20, Matthew 6, where Jesus just simply says, therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. And sometimes I just stop there because I go, well, that includes everything. He gets more specific, but it includes everything. And how good it is to hear him say, okay, he's telling me not to be anxious about my life. And what I love about this section is it ends with just a little statement. Are you not of more value than they? Meaning birds. And I love, you guys probably think I'm, I'm getting old, man. I'm a bird watcher. Oh, no. <laughs> it's happening. It's happening. <laughs> but I do love to watch birds. And when I see them, I say, God loves me more than you. <laughs> And when I see them eating, I think, God provided for them. He's going to provide for me. I look at them and I say, are you anxious? They're not anxious at all. So why would I be anxious? It's a silly little promise, but it's what God says. It's rhetorical. Are you not of more value than a bird? The answer is yes. God values me more than a bird. And he gives the bird everything the bird needs so the bird is never anxious or worried. So why am I? Another verse is Isaiah 41.10, which I bet a bunch of you already know. I just love the first line. Fear not, for I'm with you. There's the promise. Fear not. Why? I am with you. I wonder what it would do in our lives if we just simply believed God is with me. We're going to talk more about this next week. God is with me. He's here. He's with me. I don't have anything to be fearful of. If only Rebecca had embraced some of that. The promise of God that he was going to be with her son, Jacob. How that would have dispelled fear so she could have lived differently in light of God's promise. We are crazy humans, aren't we? (laughs) We have God's promise to be with us. We have his promise that he'll never leave us or forsake us. His promise is that he's going to work all things out for the good of those who love him. We know that God is completely sovereign over every detail of our lives, and yet how often do we act just like Rebecca and Esau and ignore God's promise and go on our way godless in our thinking and as a result reap anxiety and pain and conflict even within our families? wonder how often we act like atheists. We act like an atheist. We don't say we're an atheist, but we act like it in how we think about God and his promises. Well, let's look at Isaac now. Isaac has a response to all of this in verse 28, of chapter 28, verse 1. Then Isaac calls Jacob and blesses him and directs him. You must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. Arise and go to Pedan Aram, to the house of Bethul, your mother's father, and take as your wife from there one of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. So he begins with a command, get out of town, don't marry a Hittite. Then he says, verse 3, God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply. 
that you may become a company of peoples. May he give you the blessing of Abraham to you and to your offspring with you, that you may take possession of the land of your sojourners that God gave to Abraham. So he repeats the blessing, and then he, in verse 5, sends him away. At least he mentions God. <laughs> at least God is in his picture, correct? And next we're going to look a little more at the blessing that he actually pronounces over his son, which is a good one. I mean, he begins with God in the equation, God Almighty, God El Shaddai, and he wants God himself to pour down a blessing on him, not just the blessing that he would do. And he's doing it voluntarily now. He's not being tricked into blessing him like last week, right? He, he actually is blessing him willingly. The contrast here is that he is calling Jacob to himself as opposed to 27.1 where he called Esau to himself. So he's got the right kid this time. He has the right motive this time. And his blessing includes God this time. So that's pretty good. But there's something in here that strikes me as odd. And it's this. In verse 1, it tells us that he directed him to get out of town. In verse 2, he says, arise and go out of town. Then he blesses him and says, this land is yours. And then he tells him to go out of town. Do you not find that odd? Why is it that two times he says, get out of town, then he blesses him and says, this land is yours, and then it's sandwiched at the other end with, oh, and get out of town. It's almost as if Isaac is saying one thing, but actually living something different. It's almost as if he's giving mouth service to, you're going to possess the land. But then his actions are, but you better get out of town. Do you see the contrary Mary going on here? Contrary Isaac going on. He's saying one thing and doing another. Which shows you what he really believes. He doesn't believe that God really is going to give him the land, at least not right now. And that it's up to him to protect his son by getting him out of the very land that God said he was going to give him. Crazy. Isn't it? Can you imagine saying one thing and believing something else? <laughs> Crazy, isn't it? Seems like he is saying the right thing, but then actually doing the exact opposite. He's not loving, believing, and living in the good of God's promise. I think he's letting the fear, perhaps, of Rebecca, Rebecca's preference that he not marry a Hittite, and he's letting those things dominate his actions and what he does rather than the truth of God's word. What if, what if Isaac had believed God's promise to him back in chapter 26? What if Isaac had blessed Jacob and directed him to stay in the land because God had promised to give him that land and that God was going to bless all the nations through him when he's in that land? What if he had believed that and instead of telling his son to flee, he told his son to stay and to enjoy the grace of God? And so it leads to another what-if question for me that I want to pass up to you. What if, what if we believe the objective promises of God in his word and didn't just give lip service to them, but really believed them in a way that caused us to behave differently? What if we not only said the right thing, but we actually believed the right thing and it impacted how we lived each day? Maybe I can ask it this way. What things do you say are true about God and his word and his promises, but actually you don't live like they're true? 
I thoroughly enjoy. I love it when we get together one-on-one or as couples and you ask for help with something, you're struggling with something, and there's a trial in your life. And I love those meetings. Nine out of ten times what I find happens is I ask some questions. You respond with very sound theological answers. And then you say, I just don't know if I believe it. That's nine out of ten times. I never say anything profound. Usually you're your own self-problem solver. You know what you're believing that's not true. All you need is for someone to come alongside of you and say, it's true. It's true. Because most of the time, most of the time, at least with mature believers, you know what's true. You know what truth is going to help you in your fear. You know what truth is going to help you with anxiety. You know what truth is going to help you to not take action in a way that you know is not helpful. You just need somebody to come alongside of you and say, yep, it is true. It is true. It is true. And that's why we gather on Sundays, right? All I'm doing is telling you what you already know and telling you it's true. Believe it. Live it. And we need each other to help us do that. I mean, in our groups of three each week, I pray that's what's happening. You're reviewing and applying God's word and saying it's true to each other. It's true to each other. And certainly we don't always believe it's all true. But I pray we're all on a journey to believe a little more, to love it a little more, to apply it a little more, to live it a little more in such a way that the world sees even that we're different as we fight fear and anxiety and our own plans with truth from God's word. So there's at least a glimpse into Isaac's deal. And then we go back to Esau, which is kind of funny. The way they just bounce around to interviewing people. And now we go to Esau in this last little round with Esau. Verse 6. Now Esau saw that Isaac had blessed Jacob. I can almost see him like scratching his chin. Like, hmm, I see that Isaac has blessed Jacob and sent him away to take a wife. And there, and that he's blessed him and directed him. So he's connecting the dot. He blessed him and then he sent him away. He blessed him and he sent him away to get a wife who's not a Hittite wife. So he says, you must not take a wife from the Canaanite women, and that Jacob had obeyed his father and his mother and gone to Paddan Aram. So when Esau saw that the Canaanite women did not please Isaac, his father, Esau went to Ishmael and took as his wife, besides the wives he already had, Mathila, the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son, the sister of Nathalot. Sorry. So what is he doing? What's he believing? Is he believing what's true about God? Now, granted, his interaction with God are limited. He's learned a lot from his father and from his grandfather. But nevertheless, what is he believing in this story? Something about what Esau believes that we need to pay attention to, I think. Seems that he is latched on to this man-made preference of his parents. Don't marry a Canaanite. Don't marry a Hittite. And he's connecting that to, oh, that's how you get God to bless you. You do the right thing. Whatever the man-made little thing is, you do it right, and then God will bless me. And so he latches on to this, and he thinks that's the way to get blessing. He doesn't realize that Jacob is a manipulator. He's wicked. He has a deceptive heart, and yet he still gets blessed. He doesn't get that. 
All he sees is, oh, it looks like he did what his parents wanted and my dad and mom want, so if I do it too, I'll be blessed by God. There's a blessing that's going to come through my man-made obedience, obeying the commands of man. And so I ask again, what if? What if Esau believed that God appearing, appeared, and made his promises to his grandfather Abraham out of grace? What if he really believed? What if he really believed my father, grandfather Abraham was just sitting on a hill, minding his own business, didn't know anything about God, and all of a sudden, shazam, God shows up. All of grace. What if he believed that? What if Esau believed that the covenant God cut with Abraham was one-sided? Only God performed the covenant. What if he believed his grandfather's role was simply to believe in God and in God's promises? What if he believed that God's promise to bless and be with his father, Isaac, had nothing to do with Isaac's behavior? Because after all, has Isaac done anything to deserve any kind of blessing from God? I mean, he's only done messed up stuff. And yet he still gets the blessing. What if Esau had lived believing God's promises and stopped trying to earn God's blessing? What if he believed what was true, that the blessing of Abraham would come to him and to those who simply had faith in God and not obedience? What if he had gotten it? Well, it seems that he didn't, and we know more because we have the New Testament of what Esau's deal was. But Esau was not a man of faith. He was a man of worldly action trying to get God's approval by behaving a certain way. You ever been there? Maybe if I just do one more good thing, God will bless this. Maybe if I just do, you fill in the blank, I'll have God's favor. Listen, if God's blessing is based on your performance, it will be meager indeed. The Jerry Bridges quote, and I add to that every time, it would be non-existent. If God's blessing is going to be based on my behavior, even obeying God's word, I would never get blessed. How often do I love the Lord my God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, and therefore do everything that I do because of my love for him? I don't know what the percentage is, but it's not enough to get a blessing. (laughs) Which is why we bank on Christ. Because he's already done it all for us. And we believe in him, we trust him. But do we live that way, believing He secured it all. My sins are forgiven. There's nothing I can do to contribute to my righteousness. I seek Christ alone. You know what's so astonishing about this whole story? At least in my mind. You ready for it? This is what's so astonishing for me. Even though no one in this story seems to be believing, loving, or living as if God's promises are good and true, God still keeps them all. (laughs) He keeps them all. No one's believing him. No one's banking in on it or cashing in on his promises. No one's living as if they're even true. They're not even living like they've even heard God's promises. And at the end of the day, God still keeps them. That's insane. That's really good news. Really, really good news. And we're going to see more of that next week with Jacob's ladder, how God just shows up. Even though Jacob is still not doing anything that God wants him to do, he's done nothing. And yet God descends and speaks to him and blesses him. We'll see that next week more. But wow, 
in this story, God's people have to live through so much pain, fear, relational conflict, suffering, which really is mostly rooted in the, in the reality that they did not believe the promises of God. They didn't believe God, and what he said was true. And so this morning, I hope that today and this week, what if will echo through your heart? And I have two questions that I want to put on the screen for you this morning that I hope help you, help you with contemplating, what if I believed more, or how do I believe more? The first question is simply this, what promise of God would most change your life if you really understood it, believed it, loved it, and lived as if it was really true? What promise? Maybe another way to word the same question, what truth has God spoken in his word that you believe, that if you believed it, loved it, and lived it, would have a radical impact on your life and the lives of those around you. So that's why you to think for a little bit this morning. How does God want to increase your believing in a promise? How does he want to increase your believing? Is there something that you know this morning you're really struggling with and you're able to connect it to, oh, if I believed this, it would impact that then I want to take some time this morning to think through that before we sing another song. Or maybe you don't know what the truth is, and you've got the Spirit of God to help you, and you have a room full of people that are eager to help you. So if there's something you know, man, I know that I I am struggling in this area, but I don't know what promise relates to it. Turn to somebody else. Find somebody else. Ask somebody else. Let them help you connect promises of God to things that you're struggling with. I would love to see us this week just to identify, okay, where is our promise? What promise do I want to really grab a hold of this week and live as if it's 100% true? Let's avoid the downfall of our friends in Genesis 27 and 28 who didn't have the Spirit, didn't have the written word. Let's avoid their mistake. And let's grab a hold of what God has given us, his word and his Spirit to help us Embrace and love and believe and cherish the promises of God. I want to pray, and we're going to take just a couple minutes for you to write and think and talk to your neighbor and consider these two questions, and then we'll sing a song to close. Father, I thank you for your promises. God, everything in this world is so shaky. Everything in this world is so unpredictable promises are seldom fulfilled or upheld. And so we are a joyful people that we have your written word that never changes, that is packed with promises that are meant to set us free and give us joy and life and purpose. And I ask that across this room, you would drop into every one of our hearts specific promises, just one specific promise in each one of our hearts that this week we can ask you to help us to believe more and that as a result it would change how we think and how we feel and how we live. So come and do that Holy Spirit. You are a gracious, gentle, kind Holy Spirit and I pray that you would now bring comfort and that you would bring encouragement and that you would bring clarity into our minds. So speak now. Speak to us, I pray.